I know this is supposed to be a cold open, but I'm coming in hot because this is a show that I want to stand out to people. I want you to be able to understand the difference between what PX3 is fundamentally and everything else that you've heard because this is not going to be a show that's going to make you wait through three ads to listen to anything. This is not going to be a show that says, well, maybe we should wait for the polls to tell us what we think about the debate. This is a show that tells you my opinion front and center. I won't waste your time, and I won't hedge. And hopefully I can earn your respect. So here's what happened last night. Elizabeth Warren sucked. And more specifically, she sucked early. Whether or not you think it matters that she won't answer that taxes will go up for Medicare for all. It matters the fact that she's sandwiched on this issue. With apologies to the Delaniacs and the Ryan heads out there, we have actual candidates that actually will garner votes in Iowa on stage last night. And Mayor Pete went after Warren in a way that other candidates hadn't. He's good at it. They're bad at it. But that's not the issue. Because that could just be a definition of Warren saying, I'm for this big program, and Mayor Pete saying, I'm not for this program. The problem is that on her left, both on your television and in your ideological spectrum, is Bernie Sanders saying, this isn't hard. Your taxes are going to go up. So why can't Warren say it? It's not an ideological question. It's not whether or not you are identifying yourself to other people that either believe or don't believe your true moral compass. The issue is whether we can trust you. And as we've talked about on this show, that's a core problem for Warren. She has these issues that she can't seem to get over. This, in our modern era, in my opinion, is a disaster. It is an anchor. It is a unique original sin that candidates are punished for. You are way better off changing your story 14 times and having it seem genuine than you are trying to harbor the fact that your original position is something worth defending through obfuscation. Multiply this when you're supposed to be the candidate that has a plan for everything and everyone loves it When something that they're not educated on, you can demonstrate that you are. But if we can't believe that you're telling the truth on something that's fairly simple and somebody else is making look easy, then how can we trust you on the rest? Here was my favorite moment of the debate. This is a clip from my live stream, which you could have watched at twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young, laughing at Andrew Yang and Beto O'Rourke talking about heroin and weed opioid had been prescribed marijuana because we yes. made that legal in America, <laughs> ensured the VA yes. could, could prescribe it, uh, expunged the arrest <laughs> records for those who've been arrested for possession, and made sure that he was yeah, not Yeah, get him with a breach, Beto. Addicted. I also want to agree with... In fact, I think that all the young guns pretty much had a good night. I think Pete had a very good night. He actually looked like a real boy and not a hologram from the McKinsey consulting firm. What's more, I found his clash with Tulsi Gabbard about uh, Syria and Turkey and ISIS to be fascinating. It was actually refreshing to hear two veterans of our modern wars talk about our modern wars, as opposed to baby boomers, many of whom didn't serve. In general, if Biden continues to melt, 
And I hated his answer on Ukraine. He needs to go right in on that. He needs to own that issue where it will eat him alive as it currently is. It is consuming him like a flesh-eating bacteria with just uh, flecks and chunks of his real clear politics average uh, being left in a trail behind him. But if Biden continues to erode... I do think that Mayor Pete is going to be somebody that moderates take a second look at, and he was obviously rolling out the welcome mat for them in this debate. I think that Beto didn't look embarrassing, and I think it's a gigantic achievement that he actually got everybody on stage to seriously talk about UBI. Remember, the last debate, Kamala Harris was laughing at the idea that this would be something inventive, and now everybody had to seriously have an opinion. Do you believe that UBI is legitimate? And if so, or if not, why is your plan better? That's gigantic for him. The fact that he came from a, a meme to that, something, something that has to be seriously discussed, is an achievement for Yang. A few quick notes before we get to the main event. I thought Booker's why are mommy and daddy fighting routine is tiresome and stupid. It's a debate amongst Democratic candidates. Let them hash out their issues so voters can know who to support. This is not just a pageant for the general election. This is an actual discussion and testing of metal for these candidates. And I got something for Kamala Harris. All right. You fired your campaign leadership because everything melted after the surge in the summer. And the number one idea that the new folks have coming in is we should run to the mods at Twitter to get Donald Trump kicked off? I'm sorry. You got to keep that revolving door revolving. That's a fireable offense. This is a terrible message, and there's a reason why you've been an afterthought in this entire breakdown. But the more I think about it, there is one headliner and his name is Bernie Sanders. Nobody had more at stake in this debate than Bernie did. Bernie is 78 years old. He'd be the oldest president elected. I feel like no matter what, whenever I say his age, I need to contractually repeat that he would be the oldest president ever elected. And therefore, coming out of a heart attack episode, you need to prove that you are still viable. He was spry. He was quick-witted. He had a joke that came right at the same time as uh, when the question came in about his heart attack. I think he handled it very well. That's important. That's the shot. Here's the chaser. He has erased any news about his heart attack because of the announcement that he made. And that is what we're going to get into today on PX3. Bernie Sanders has a posse, and the leader of that squad is AOC. It is at the largesse of everybody who supports us at TakePoliticsSeriously.com that I welcome you to PX3. Oh, man, good to have that out of my system. I just got so annoyed, man, just listening to reading all this stuff, and it's, oh, what's a hedge? I don't know. Maybe. Come on. Have an opinion. Say it. Ugh. All right. Welcome to the PX3 program. My name is Justin Robert Young. We got a lot to talk about. We're going to have a couple guests. 
We're going to have Dave Leventhal. He is going to come on and talk to us all about the money. The money. The the official reports are out. So we're going to discuss uh, all of the uh, uh, information, including we're going to get a little bit into burn rate. How much should campaigns spend? How much do they normally spend? Are any of them overspending? And what does that mean going into the primaries? Because, look, this is a crucial fundraising and organizational period right now. All these candidates, they're going to have two more debates, and then we are into 2020, and you are right at the doorstep of Iowa. We have that, and we're also going to have our buddy Andrew Heaton stop by. That is very exciting. But first, let's get into the big news. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez will endorse Bernie Sanders. Allegedly, she will be flanked by her two other squad mates, Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar. This all goes down at a big old rally in Queens. So... What does this mean? Best I can tell, there's three factors. Here's the first one. This is a big win for Bernie. It totally knocks the heart attack news into orbit. He had a good debate last night, and now we have the AOC news. No one's going to remember anything about his heart. That's how fast this turned around. In fact, it makes me wonder whether or not they played this card earlier than they wanted to because no matter what the fact that AOC is endorsing Bernie Sanders if indeed they had this in the bank you would think maybe you do this a little bit closer to Iowa maybe in 2020 obviously you got to kind of dance around the holiday news hole you don't want to do it too close to Thanksgiving or Christmas or else it's going to get kind of subsumed with everybody traveling and doing other things. But I just get the feeling that this was a break glass in case of emergency situation. They're sitting in that hospital and they're saying, all right, what do we need to do to get back on track? Number one, let's announce that the debate's going to happen. Have a strong debate. Let's not tire him out before it. Don't do any other events. They do that one interview with ABC where he kind of seeds that uh, there are some, you know, end to the ceasefire with Warren, do the debate, and then announce this. I've been very impressed with the Bernie campaign since the heart attack. You always say in, in basketball that you know how good a coach is by how well run the plays are out of a timeout. They had a very rare and dangerous timeout, and they have executed very well so far, in my opinion. You know, unlike some campaigns which decided to bank their entire political future on at replying Jack to ban Trump from Twitter. Not that this is a thing that I keep wanna harping on, but it's one of the dumb Okay, all right, whatever. Number two. This isn't just AOC endorsing Bernie. AOC is a media magnet, and her endorsement is just as much of a debut for her as a surrogate as it is a gigantic rally. She's also bringing two other gigantic media magnets, Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, 
to create a very formidable roster of women that will talk about every bump in the road during this campaign trail. Understand that this does not end with an event in Queens. This from here on out is every press scrum. This is every Instagram story. This is every scandal. This is every spin moment. They have no fear about engaging on social media or traditional media. And indeed, they will do that for Bernie. Look, it's no secret that these are children of a revolution that Bernie started. Now's their time to make Papa proud. Number three. This is a huge loss for Warren. Warren had been very complimentary to AOC, and in the Time 100 Most Influential Leaders issue this year, I'm just going to go ahead and read you a little bit what uh, Elizabeth Warren wrote about the young congresswoman. Her commitment to putting power in the hands of the people is forged in fire. Coming from a family in crisis and graduating from school with a mountain of debt, she fought back against a rigged system and emerged as a fearless leader in a movement committed to demonstrating what an economy, a planet, and a government that works for everyone should look like. A year ago, she was taking orders across a bar, and today, millions are taking cues from her. She reminds all of us, that even while greed and corruption slow our progress, even while armies of lobbyists swarm Washington and our democracy, true power still rests with the people. And she's just getting started. End quote. <laughs> yes, it turns out she was just getting started. And for her next trick, she's going to try and bury your campaign. Make no mistake. Bernie's era of being the giving tree is over. Not only does he uh, take the shot at Warren in the ABC interview, but he's about to roll out three women that are more the future, just as female, and more progressive than somebody that stands in Bernie's way of the White House. Now, the other side of this is that the squad is polarizing. You know, for, for some, they are radioactive. And certainly, Omar and Talib have at times uh, been very prone to get themselves into hot water. But for Bernie, I don't know how much that matters. He's talked about the same stuff for decades and decades. So if somebody comes to Bernie and says, oh, this person that endorsed you is now doing this, that, or the other. Do you back them up? I think he's pretty well practiced at saying, I don't care about that. What I'm cared about is the millionaires and billionaires, whatever. However, this whole situation, this moment where Bernie, an older candidate, is reaching to the future to keep him young, made me think back to other key endorsements and it reminded me of a young candidate reaching to the past to show wisdom so join me friends won't you as we go back in time it started with an op-ed in the new york times on january 27th 
2008. The insurgent underdog Barack Obama had notched surprise victories in Iowa, Nevada, and South Carolina. But the favorite, Hillary Clinton, struck back in New Hampshire and had a mountain of superdelegates to pad her lead if things really got close. Looming on February 5th was Super Tuesday, a moment when the world would find out if Obama was for real or just a flash in the pan who campaigned well in the early states. He needed to show that this was a moment in time Democrats would never forget. He needed the magic. He needed to be blessed by a dynasty. Where it began I can't begin to knowing But then I know it's growing strong Over the years, I've been deeply moved by the people who have told me they wish they could feel inspired and hopeful about America the way people did when my father was president. This sense is even more profound today. That is why I'm supporting a presidential candidate in the Democratic primaries, Barack Obama. Those are the words of Caroline Kennedy, daughter to John F. Kennedy. Politics loves dynasties, and there are few more revered in the democratic universe than the Kennedys, specifically when you are talking about a young candidate that seems like he's about to change the world. This was gigantic. This was seismic. And dare I say, it was one of the first few times that the establishment seemed like they were okay with Hillary faltering. It only got more pronounced that next Monday when there was a big rally where not only Caroline spoke, but also Senator Ted Kennedy, brother to Jack and Bobby. Barack Obama is the one person running for president who can bring us that change. Barack Obama is the one person for running for president who can be that change. I love this country. I believe in the bright light of hope and possibility. I always have, even in the darkest hours. I know what America can achieve. I've seen it. I've lived it. And with Barack Obama, we can do it again. Look, the Kennedys could have stayed silent. They could have created another dynasty in the Clintons by playing a part in electing the first woman president. But they didn't. 
They anointed Obama in the middle of a make-or-break primary moment. Now, there's a reason why, when I was thinking today about, like, big endorsements that have happened in the past, uh, I couldn't think of a lot. Because I'm guessing that behind the scenes, for every one of a Caroline Kennedy endorses Obama in the New York Times, there's a thousand... Man, if I could, I would endorse you conversations. But there's one that I think is particularly rich considering our news peg. And that is there was an endorsement that a lot of Bernie fans really wanted in 2016 when Bernie was going up against Hillary Clinton. It was a well-regarded progressive senator from Massachusetts. In fact, she sat in the same seat Ted Kennedy once owned for decades. But despite general well-wishing, Elizabeth Warren sat on the sidelines in 2016 until Hillary had all but sewn up the nomination. That is something that AOC will not do. Politics! Before we get to our interview with Dave Leventhal, let me remind you guys that you can support this show by heading on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. That is where you fund the show. Uh, We are up against some really awesome uh, uh, financial milestones, which are, are going to really give us a budget to maybe travel a little bit, spend some money on a few other things. Just know that your support means the world to me. In fact, if you are a $3 club member, you got a, a, a post that came out yesterday asking you guys some questions. I really want your feedback on it. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. All right. If you want my point of view five days a week, then get my free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. Five days a week, five stories a day, gifts, analysis, and more. All right, let's get into Dave Leventhal, the money man. Politics. Uh, it, it, it seems like although we have almost exclusively sort of focused on the rise and fall of the various Democratic candidates, I want to start with Trump this time because... In, in the words of, of Lone Star in Spaceballs, this is not just money. This is an S-load of money that he raised in Q3. And apparently, a fair amount of it happened uh, after the impeachment uh, push was announced. Uh, uh, number one, historically, where does Donald Trump's Q3 haul rate? And how much do we know that impeachment played a role in it? So for this point in time, it, it's... <laughs> It's pretty historic, uh, not not the top top of the heap, but uh, pretty darn close. And here's the thing about Donald Trump, uh, Justin. He's been raising money for his 2020 reelection quite literally since the day of his inauguration when he stood on the steps of the U.S. Capitol down the street from where I'm at right now. And he filed paperwork with the Federal Election Commission to do what he's been doing ever since, which is bringing cash into his campaign. That is unprecedented unprecedented. No political candidate running for president in the history of the United States has entered his reelection phase 
so early. I mean, it doesn't get any more early than Inauguration Day. Yeah. So, you know, Donald Trump, he he not only has, you know, continued to bring in a significant amount of money as time has gone along, but he started the race with a huge haul. He was raising, he was spending, he was running his campaign as if it was in the teeth of a primary or even in a general election phase. And he was going around the country having MAGA rally after MAGA rally. And those were not official White House events. Those were campaign events. And at those campaign events, he's selling swag. He's raising money. He's doing all the things and and, and, uh, benefiting from all the trappings of a full-fledged campaign, which is exactly what it was. Meanwhile, all the Democrats are just, you know, sitting around deciding whether they're going to get in and ultimately did uh, earlier than uh, typically candidates do. But Trump's success today is built on a foundation of him doing something that is so markedly different than, again, any other presidential candidate in U.S. history. And this was like uh, and what was just so people know, what was what was the Q3 number for Trump? So it's a two numbers are key here. Number one, it's a little bit more than $40 million that his own campaign committee has brought in. And and that's more than any of the Democrats have brought in. Now, of course, Donald Trump is effectively the only Republican running. There's, of course, a couple of others. Uh, Mark Sanford had a uh, kickoff rally today in Philadelphia. Uh, one person showed up. It, 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 you know, you can't make the stuff up. But, you know, so, look, but Dave, if he's a billionaire, that's still something. Uh, well, you know, he's uh, he's not doing poorly. Uh, at least Mark <laughs> Sanford, uh, Donald Trump, uh, very, very much, uh, you know, still a billionaire, uh, although, you know, Forbes may, uh, you know, ha- have other things to say about that. Yeah. But the, the point with Donald Trump is that, uh, you know, he's got a huge amount of money coming into his own campaign. He also have has what's, a, you know, effectively a, a unified force with the Republican Party machinery. He's in a way kind of uh, supersumed the the Republican National Committee. He's made it a wholly owned subsidiary of Trump reelection incorporated. And by virtue of that, the money that's going to the RNC, which is well more in the third quarter than a hundred million dollars, well past that mark. All that money is going really toward Donald Trump's reelection effort and, and certainly down ballot races to some extent and, and the promotion of the Republican Party brand and ticket. But really, that's that's Donald Trump through and through. So he's got that added advantage that goes above and beyond his own campaign that none of the Democrats have at this juncture. That will change, but it's not going to change for the Democrats until at the minimum you get a whole lot of candidates weeded out of this field and you don't have debate stages with a dozen candidates on them. We're still three months away from the first ballots being cast in Iowa and New Hampshire. So the Republican uh, Republican National Committee with Donald Trump, they have that that strength that the Democrats just simply can't have right now because they're going through a very different process in primary season. We've seen the Trump organization brag about how much they made after Nancy Pelosi made the impeachment announcement. Do we have any proof from the filings that this indeed was a major windfall? I am glad you asked that question because my colleague Chris Zubek-Skies and I here at the Center for Public Integrity were crunching those very numbers uh, overnight and uh, just came out with a story today that answers that question. The answer, still read the story, but the answer is <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, you can, we, we analyze by day. We don't have all the numbers, mind you, because we won't have small dollar donation numbers day in and day out until 
early next year. But we could look at the large dollar donations, which have to be reported. And you can track them day by day. And on September 24th, well, what happened on September 24th? That was the day that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said that she will endorse an impeachment inquiry. Donald Trump's numbers among large dollar donors, those who are giving more than $200 a pop, went through the roof. It it was, I believe, six or seven times beyond what he raised the day before. And that just kept up through the end of the month. He was raising uh, pretty much uh, the the best day-to-day totals uh, over that short of period of time uh, for his entire campaign uh, since he won the presidency. So that right there, you know, we, we can't uh, draw a 100 percent conclusion that was all because of impeachment, but certainly impeachment and, and the threat thereof was uh, something that was an incredible motivating factor for Trump supporters. And also, too, that's something that Donald Trump and Democrats absolutely, too, have have used to their great advantage, uh, have been exploiting the notion of impeachment ever since uh, the House Democrats uh, in in almost full totality came out and said, yeah, you know, we we back this. And Nancy Pelosi came out and said, "Okay, we can go forward with this. People have been raising crazy money ever since that happened. And that's something that I talked to a lot of folks who were around during Bill Clinton's uh, impeachment, Mm -hmm. including Ted Kennedy's press secretary and the Republican leader of the NRCC, which is the House wing for reelecting members of Republican members of the House, Tom Davis. And both of them said the same thing, which is that this kind of a situation where the the act of impeaching the president of the United States would be some massive cash grab fundraising tool would have been absolutely unthinkable. All right. So uh, uh, we know that this is a whole new ball game in terms of raising money for impeachment. We know that Donald Trump has raised a ton of money. One more Trump question, and then we'll get to the Democrats. The Donald Trump re-election campaign manager is Brad Parscale. He was the Facebook director in the 2016 campaign. He has made a gigantic point about how he is uh, going to build the biggest data harvesting and targeting organization ever known to man. Uh do we know how much of the money that has gone gone through the Trump campaign is going directly to Facebook ads or other targeting uh, uh, systems? So millions upon millions of dollars already have gone through, uh, and it'll be tens of millions of dollars uh, very soon if it isn't already, and it going through various social media platforms, other digital targeting uh, operations. This is a huge, huge part of the Trump playbook. It's not the only part of the playbook, though, uh, and and that's important to note. Uh, I was on a conference call with reporters with the Trump campaign a couple of days ago, and speaking on background, they they made the the very firm point, and I believe them, that they're also investing a heck of a lot of money in ground operations, and that's going to take several forms. It's uh, going to be get-out-to-vote efforts in the end, of course, but in the meantime, trying to engage the base, trying to enliven volunteers, and uh, they're really setting ambitious numbers for the ordinal number of people who they can get in those different types of jobs, both paid folks who are doing work on behalf of the campaign, but also to folks who are volunteering on behalf of uh, the Trump campaign, and also volunteering on behalf of their local congressional candidate or Senate candidate, be it what it may. So there's a uh, a very large multi-pronged effort that's going forward from the Trump campaign. And that's a luxury that they have because they have so much bloody money. When you have tons of money, when you have more money than everyone else, at least at this stage, 
you can make those kinds of investments and it's not an either or, well, hey, we're going to go heavy on digital, but we're going to have to scale back over here and uh, with our on the field, in the field offices and on the ground operations. No, they can they can do both. And, and the Trump campaign has that luxury. And also, too, that's because of the kind of fundraising that they're doing. This is not some Elizabeth Warren style. Oh, no, we don't want money from lobbyists and we don't want money from PACs and we don't want money from this type of person. And we'll only take money on Tuesday, but not Wednesday. <laughs> you know, Democrats are really just trying to, in, in a way, outdo each other with the kind of money that they're not taking. Yeah. The Trump campaign is saying, oh, we'll take everything. We'll take yeah. big money. We'll take small money. And they're really good at raising both of it, which means that in the end, they're really, really good at raising money. And again, different game, Democratic primary to Donald Trump without a Republican primary. But right now in the money game, Donald Trump is just, uh, you know, kicking the heck out of the Democrats, at least at this juncture. One footnote on the, you know, the, the center of all of those Trump efforts are those rallies, because not only are they gigantic uh, uh, excitement drivers and media drivers when and the candidate obviously loves them, but uh, as Parscale has laid out, they are massive, literal stadiums worth of data harvesting for you know, to just even get in the door, which also helps to get out the vote stuff. Oh, so completely. So uh, let's get into the Democrats. Uh, Bernie Sanders is, again, our quarter champion, uh, uh, bringing in a very tidy haul. In fact, a, a real bit of a poop sandwich a few weeks for Bernie. He has this great financial number, then he has a heart attack, and now he has a good debate in this AOC endorsement. But let's focus on the number. How big is it for Bernie Sanders? So he uh, pulled in about $28 million, which was uh, well ahead of the other candidates uh, on the Democratic side for the third quarter. So July 1st through September 30th. And that's very good news for him uh, in that his poll numbers have been going in the wrong direction lately in some key states, definitely nationally. And what is that money going to do? Well, it's crunch time now. As we just mentioned, there's about three months until the first ballots uh, are getting cast. And as a result of that, if you have a lot of money at this point in the game, you've got some candidates who have fallen to the wayside, the Kirsten Gillibrands and the John Hickenloopers. So, you know, so, some of the, uh, the, the the chaff is separating from the wheat here. Bernie Sanders is one candidate who can really, really begin to make very strategic investments in states where either he's flagging or in places where he thinks he's got a really good shot of winning. And for Bernie Sanders to be a candidate who does as well, even as he did in 2016, especially with a Democratic field that is just so crowded, he's going to have to win one of the first four states w without question. Iowa, New Hampshire, yeah. South Carolina, Nevada. And and if he's 0 for 4 after those states, pretty much game over. Well, for anybody. Sanders. I mean, this is this is this thing. Whenever we see all these uh, you know, like, oh, well, look, you know, Biden's got a firewall in South Carolina. South Carolina is the fourth state that's going to vote in this primary cycle. If he goes 0 for 3, he won't be leading in South Carolina. And if anybody doesn't win one of those four, they're definitely not going to be president. That's never well, it's happened. Like the, it's like the Rudy Giuliani firewall of 2008. Of you know, the firewall just kept pushing back and pushing back yeah. all the way to Florida. And then, well, we all know how that turned out. But, you know, for Bernie Sanders, it, it's very real. He won New Hampshire in, yes. in 2016. He beat Hillary Clinton. He he won a lot of states. And he, he came it, within votes of winning in Iowa, too. He, it was he, it was he like, sure did. I, I think, a, a, a delegate wise, a dead heat, although Hillary so, got the press. 
Precisely. And, uh, you know, if he's not able to at least, uh, you know, replicate that kind of success at some level, again, must underscore almost at every turn, different situation, different election cycle, many more candidates this time around. The game is different. But still, if, if he won New Hampshire as big as he did last time around and four years hence in a state that's immediately next to the one that he represents in the U.S. Senate, he finishes third or fourth or something like that, then that's going to be really, really awful news for him. And it's hard to see him recovering, politically speaking, from from that type of a, a hit. Uh, he's going to have to do better than that. All right. Bernie was number one. Who uh, 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 came up right behind him? Elizabeth Warren. And Elizabeth Warren is uh, almost unique in this race for the reason that she is the one candidate who continues to go up and up and up in the polls. And I know Andrew Yang supporters can be like, what about Andrew Yang? <laughs> well, yes, he is. But he's also still at three percent nationally in, in most polls. Elizabeth Warren is not. You know, she's uh, number two or even number one in certain polls, depending on which one you're looking yeah, at. I, I think I think you know, we, we, state by we, state. we here on the on, on the PX3 show, we, we we recognize the real clear politics average as our championship belt. And currently she holds it. Uh, yet, yes, she does. And uh, and as a result, uh, this is something that when it comes to money, twenty four million dollars, uh, a little more than that uh, for the third quarter is is significant. And it's significant in and of itself. It's also crazy significant, because if we were having this conversation just in six months ago, and I actually think we were having this conversation six <laughs> I believe months so, ago, yeah. we were talking about the doldrums that Elizabeth Warren was in and yeah. how bad her campaign was how bad the fundraising was, how she was just being lost in the mix and morass of the Democratic primary with other candidates overshadowing her. Well, that obviously isn't the case right now. The selfie lines have been working. She's been making connections. The whole, you know, Donald Trump calling her Pocahontas thing has receded into the background, at least for now. And we saw really sort of the biggest indicator of all that she's at the top of the Democratic primary heap is that she was the target in this last Democratic debate. It wasn't Joe Biden. Nope. It wasn't Bernie Sanders. It was Elizabeth Warren. And that's really the first time on a national stage or arguably at all where she has faced so much criticism and so much targeting and arguably, you know, uh, could have could have done a little bit better to answer some of uh, the questions that she got. Oh, oh yeah. No, no. Absorb I mean, some I, of the hits, yeah. particularly on health care. You're going to come later in an episode where I trash her in the first segment. So, yes, no, she did. She did. <laughs> she did a very bad job, but she did a very good job in terms of raising this money. And so far, her small donor pledge is uh, something that has not particularly hurt or, or her or Bernie, like the, the top two fundraisers are people that uh, continue to tout exactly how little the do the per person donation is. Bernie, Bernie Sanders proved the concept in 2016 that you could run a campaign and run a successful one for president of the United States where you rejected major, major sources of cash, traditional sources of cash, big dollar donors rejecting having super PACs support you not taking political action committee cash directly, all those things. And Elizabeth Warren has made that her own this time. Bernie, of course, is still doing it, but she's taken it in, in a way innovated and even gone perhaps to another level by being so outward with it, by wearing it so very much on her sleeve. And 
even giving back certain sources of money now from different types of executives and whatnot and then refunding those donations. So she's uh, she's she's in uh, she, she's in, you know, full on with the notion of she's going to run a campaign that's very different when it comes to money. And she's going to run a campaign that uh, she hopes is going to be able to prove that you you can win while running on your ideology and not subscribing to the yeah, sort of uh, standard democratic operating procedure of, well, we can't unilaterally disarm, which we've heard time and time again. Well, super PACs, yeah, we don't like them, but we're going to swallow hard and we're going to deal with them. Ah, big money. Yeah, we don't like that either, but we need it. And when we get into office, we'll change the system. Elizabeth Warren is effectively saying, no, you know, change starts now. Change starts with me for better or for worse. This is the way I'm going. And she's found a, a, a surprising degree of success, again, relative to the kinds of conversations that were happening around her not long ago. It is only marginally better than somebody who came very close to her total, though, uh, and that is somebody who does not have the same qualms about taking PAC money, Pete Buttigieg, who had, a, uh, I thought, a very good night and certainly uh, scored points on Elizabeth Warren on that debate stage. He had a very good fundraising quarter, although not as uh, good as he did in Q2, although I think that that is uh, to be expected just overall that Q3 is in general smaller than Q2, right? Yeah, and the summer doldrums, you know, really will have an effect, Justin. And it's uh, you got people who are on vacation. You're not paying attention to politics. So you would expect that candidates in Q3 sometimes are, are going to take a slight step backward from yeah. their Q2 numbers or, or when they first announce. I mean, heck. Beto O'Rourke raised six million freaking dollars on the day <laughs> he announced, and he couldn't even manage to raise five million dollars during Q3. Now he's got some other issues, and maybe we'll get to him in a moment. But yes. At least for Pete Buttigieg, he's he's been a candidate who consistently has been able to raise money. He has a very passionate base. He uh, and the question is, is it going to be big enough for him to be a, a viable uh, challenger to the mantle right now that uh, that Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren and, and Bernie Sanders uh, certainly to some extent have right now, which is the front runner status. Uh, and he just has not been able to crack that, uh, at least at this point, although his poll numbers in New Hampshire are getting a little bit better. A lot of people think that he might have a breakout moment like he kind of had in this debate uh, I, I mean he, 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 I think yeah, he, he can barely he say he did as well as any candidate uh, yeah on that stage. no I, I thought I thought he did good and he to me he kind of carved out he's like oh no I'm the young moderate if right. you like moderate stuff and you like right. youth look at me <laughs> I'm the young moderate uh, uh these are things that I think I can I can go forward on and really Iowa and New Hampshire is where he really needs to focus right now uh, I, I don't want to keep you too long, uh, but I do want to get to one major thing that really has become its own talking point, and that is not only how much these candidates have raised, but the burn rate, a.k.a. how much they have spent throughout their campaign lives so far. And there are a few big culprits that have uh, really burned through. They are they are negative. They're, they're spending more than they're making right now. Yeah. And this is a huge problem if you're burning through your cash in Q3 and you're, you're getting to the point where you're going to have to make some really, really big plays or take some chances or take some risks uh, before the caucuses and the primary start. And we just noted Beto O'Rourke. He's somebody who stands out for me as, as sort of the 
the ultimate, you know, churn and burn candidate at this point. <laughs> he just doesn't have enough money coming in to run a national campaign. And it's it's just such a fall from political fundraising grace for him in the sense that no candidate in the history of U.S. Senate races has raised more money than Beto O'Rourke. Yeah. And 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 now he he can't string, you know, a couple million dollars together after raising 80 million dollars plus against Ted Cruz. Not, you know, five, 10 years ago, but that was last year. Yeah, <laughs> that was last year he was doing this. And and, you know, folks have abandoned him. So in a way, it uh, it, it makes one wonder, uh, you know, how much uh, his support was simply because people Hate hated Ted Cruz, Ted Cruz that <laughs> much. But in and, and hate, you know, no knock on him in the sense that he was very compelling. He did things uh, that very few Democrats and Texas or elsewhere were willing to do, which was quite literally travel to all of the, you know, 260 plus counties and Texas and, and so on and so forth. But none of this is translating into any type of demonstrable success for him here in the presidential race. And uh, we've been we've been wondering, all right, well, where does this go and how long can this go? And for for O'Rourke and the answer may be, well, you know, the, the party's going to end pretty soon. Uh, he's just simply going to run out of money. Now, you can still keep running for president, but if yeah. you have no ground game, if you have no field workers, you have no ability to advertise, and nobody's really that excited about you, well, okay, <laughs> good luck. You can get your 3% in New Hampshire, and you know Vermin Supreme or somebody is uh, going to be right on your heels. It's yeah. just going to be an embarrassment. Well, and there's also the fact that he has yet to qualify for the November debate, and by his trajectory— uh, yeah, uh, it doesn't like does not look like he will. There were a few other candidates that had burn issues, though, right? There are, and uh, most of them are the ones we haven't mentioned at this point. Uh, you know, you've got candidates who were off the debate stage: uh, Governor Steve Bullock from Montana. You've got Michael Bennett, uh, the congressman, the senator rather from Colorado, uh, and uh, Tulsi Gabbard, who was on the debate stage. Uh, and th these are candidates who are either bringing in as much as they're spending and, and their their burn rate is just keeping them kind of at the status quo, which is not very high in the first place, or they're just spending more than they're bringing in. So as a result, uh, you know, those types of folks, uh, you can add Leon Castro into that mix, definitely Marianne Williams, who was also not on the debate stage. Uh, Amy Klobuchar is, is, you know, not really anywhere uh, when it comes to uh, her ability to to raise a significant amount of money to make big investments. And it's uh, just getting later and later in the game. And, you know, if you're behind, you, you got to score a lot of points. And if you don't have the firepower to do it, then it's really, 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 really hard to try to figure out where you're going to make a, a big splash in one of those early states and knock off the guys who aren't tough. Dave, I'm doing this for you. All right. I'm I'm your friend and I want you to have a peaceful online lifestyle. So for the love of God, <laughs> say something nice about Andrew Yang's haul in Q three. Again, I'm doing this as your friend. I want you to be able to use Twitter. Well, uh, look, he raised ten million dollars. Okay. Now, nobody knew who Andrew Yang was except probably his immediate friends, family, business colleagues prior to the beginning of this year. And now Andrew Yang is on the debate stage and he's been in every debate. 
He's raised $10 million, which is more than Senator Cory Booker or mm-hmm. Beto O'Rourke or Kamala any, Harris. You know, yeah. 10 plus. Yeah. 10 plus other candidates. And uh, and, you know, Tom Steyer, even though he's self-funding his campaign, I mean, I believe when you do the numbers, Andrew Yang raised more money than Tom Steyer did absent Tom Steyer's own self-funding. So, you know, Andrew Yang is a real sensation. Uh, there's no way to deny that. And he's obviously, you know, motivated uh, a huge number of people who are very, very passionate about Andrew Yang. The thing with Andrew Yang, whether you love him to the end of the world, is, uh, and bear with me here, a bit of a Ron Paul problem. Now, their politics, obviously completely different to very different types of people in, in political candidates. But the thing about them is they both have very, very, very dedicated, passionate bases, and and it's a limited base, uh, at least at this point for Andrew Yang. Even though it's been growing bigger than a lot of people thought it ever would be, he's still, you know, pretty much at three percent nationally. And in states like New Hampshire and Iowa and South Carolina and Nevada, he's in fifth place, sixth place, seventh place, eighth place. And that's not going to be good enough if you really, truly, genuinely expect that Andrew Yang is going to become the Democratic nominee or the next president of the United States. So uh, for him to do something other than what he's doing now in in the state that he's in right now, uh, he's really going to have to prove to a broader swath of Americans that he can be appealing just beyond that, that core base that he has, and that he's just not running for, you know, some cabinet post or whatnot (laughs) in the Kamala Harris administration or whatever it may be. Uh, well, I mean, look, uh, she already, uh, you know, thought he was lots of laughs on the Houston debate stage. So, <laughs> you know, maybe maybe he'd be a good office mate. Uh, yeah. The one thing I would say about Yang comparatively to Ron Paul, although I totally agree with that uh, uh, assessment that that there is a similar kind of fervor to it, is that I, I can't remember, although I'm sure somebody might be able to send me the clip uh, in, you know, a debate last night like we had last night where there's a lot of eyeballs on it. There was like a serious discussion of UBI where all the other top tier candidates had to kind of explain whether they liked it or or what why their programs were better or different in a way that I don't remember anybody uh, having to ask, you know, uh, Mitt Romney or Newt Gingrich about the gold standard, uh, you know, one of Ron Paul's old hobby horses. Without question. And he's Andrew Yang has been able to drive the conversation in that direction and in a shocking way. And he's made it part of the conversation for Democrats right now. He's made it part of the conversation for the country. And if there's one thing that even, dare I say it, uh, Trump supporters seem to be interested in if they're bothering to listen to any of the things that the Democrats are saying is the notion that there would be some sort of universal basic income. And for, you know, a lot of Trump supporters, it's not just the the strict traditional conservatism, uh, economic conservatism that that you would think of and associate no, with. Absolutely not. Ronald Reagan and Jack Kemp. You know, yeah. this, this is this is actually a cool idea uh, for a lot of people out there that are like, oh, well, yeah, I'm, I'm paying my taxes and I'm working hard. And well, yeah, the government should give me something back. And uh, that would be great. Uh, so, you know, there, there's a notion and his catchphrase, you know, it's not left. It's right. It's forward. There, there's a certain appeal to that, but he's not running for president in the general election right now. He's going against candidates who are trying to, you know, go as far left oftentimes as they possibly can to uh, to try to win the nomination uh, from that part of the ideological spectrum. And 
is Andrew Yang going to really truly fit in there? You know, and, uh, and also this is best. this is a beware all who enter for uh, if you are a fan of Mayor Pete, if you're a fan of Andrew Yang, they have uh, let's say that they do break through into this top tier of candidates, the Bernie, uh, Biden, and Warren uh, echelon. All of a sudden, you're going to see a lot different press coverage about them. They have been allowed to kind of grow at their own pace in a way that top tier candidates are often not allowed. Couldn't agree more. Dave, of course, we can read all of your stuff at the Center for Public Integrity. And your new uh, story is called Impeachment, a Windfall for Donald Trump and some Democrats. It is awesome. And uh, everybody should go and read it. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, sir, for having me. Politics! All right, before we go any further, I do have some news. I will be attending Politicon. Politicon is going to be in Nashville, Tennessee, Tennessee, the 25th, 26th, and 27th, or at least that's the weekend. I've gone in the past when it was in L.A., and indeed, you will be able to buy my card game, The Contender. That'll be there. But Saturday night, I am going to be doing a meetup And it will be in conjunction with the man who is going to come on right after I stop talking, Andrew Heaton. So again, that will be a meetup in Nashville, Tennessee on October 26th with Andrew Heaton. If we're able to get the right uh, uh, venue, then it may or may not be a combined live show of his podcast, The Political Orphanage, and PX3. But... We're working on that. So here's all you need to do. Follow me on Twitter at Justin R. Young, and you will know when and where it happens. But, well, you actually know where it's going to be Nashville. You already know when it's going to be the 26th of October. That is next Saturday, and it will probably be around 7 o'clock. But you will have all the rest of the details, including where to go as soon as uh, we figure it out. But just know to carve out that time. That's the big important thing. Without any further ado. Here is Andrew Heaton. Andrew, Hello. how are you, sir? Oh, I'm living the dream. I'm thrilled to be back on your program. Thanks, Justin. Uh, the host of The Political Orphanage, which I think the last time we had you on, you were an employee of The Blaze, and uh, uh, you were plugging the fact that you were going to be on a religious cruise through the Mediterranean <laughs> with Glenn Beck and Bill O'Reilly. Uh, yeah. And then life, uh, as it happens to do, took a bit of a detour, right? It it did. Uh, I have to say, I'm very pleased to be independent now. That is more fitting my uh, my brand personality and direction. Uh, although I'm sure the cruise would have been a lot of fun. Oh uh, man! But, uh, but no, I, I, I've been doing my own thing. Instead of going on that cruise, I was at Burning Man this summer, uh, and uh, which was markedly different. I do I imagine the cruise would have been fun, but Burning Man a whole different ball game than being on a, on a boat full of. Uh, uh, historically enthusiastic conservatives. Yeah, although um, you might have run into uh, 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 Grover Norquist there too. Also possible because yeah. I did I did run into Grover Norquist at Burning Man <laughs> and interviewed him inside of an RV. Which, by the way, uh, by the way, this was entirely possible he was on the same cruise. Yeah, this is amazing, and you should go listen to this episode on uh, Andrew's new podcast. In fact, if you listen to and, and were subscribed to Andrew's old podcast on the Blaze, he did a thing that. I've known many friends that have come and gone from podcast networks. Nobody has pulled the move that you did where you actually were able to keep your RSS feed. So uh, amazing kings to you there on that. Thank you. I, you know what? I have very positive reviews. And having been in this game for a little bit, I know that like if, if I get invited on a show and, I, and I'm tight on scheduling, 
I'll look and see how many reviews there are. And if there's like three reviews, then I'm like, all right, this I'll, if it's a favor, I'll do it. But this isn't going to, but I've got like 500 reviews. So you can reasonably infer that I'm not doing it out of my basement. In reality, uh, Justin, I am sitting at my friend's ca- yeah. kitchen table in Los Angeles. Like I, <laughs> I am, but, uh, but it, it comes off as if I have my own studio. I did. I definitely have my own audience. Uh, yeah, it's worth checking out. The Grover Norquist one's fun. Uh, and, and I, I think I am the only person to have a full length conversation with Grover Norquist about two things, uh, comedy and not taxes. I think I might, I might have got him to speak about not taxes longer than anyone else, uh, in, in history. It was amazing because I was perusing my podcast feed and I just see Grover Norquist at Burning Man. And initially I just thought amongst your uh, uh, very funny comedy stylings that that was just your (laughs) metaphor for you being at Burning Man for the first time. And then lo and behold, there he is talking about juggling and stand up comedy uh, tax hound himself, Grover Norquist. So uh, just uh, amazing and awesome. And you should go listen to the podcast because it is as uh, sharp uh, as ever. And uh, I'm pumped that you are doing it independent. Uh, I wanted to have you on, though, because. Uh, I just wanted to, to to check in. You've been all over the place. Is there anything that is on the top of your mind politically these days? Have you been following any of the uh, uh, the the primary race or the debates or anything? Yeah, well, I, I definitely I definitely am following all of them. I mean, the, the stuff that tends to to kind of wallow in my mind is I, I gravitate towards policy and heuristics. Yes. So I'm always I'm always thinking about how do people think. That's the thing that's usually on my mind. In fact, the, the episode that I just dropped today. Uh, I brought on uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Dr. Grossman from uh, Michigan State University, and, and he he wrote a book about how Republicans and Democrats don't just um, they don't just have different goals, values, and platforms. They actually think differently and they organize differently. And so that kind of stuff I'm always intrigued by. But I have been watching the the primaries, uh, both the Republican primary, in which I'm still rooting for Bill Weld, and uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm just ever hopeful that he will overturn Trump and restore order and balance to the Republican Party of my forefathers. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and I'm watching the Democratic primary, and I'm, I'm a lot less, uh, well, I, I guess I'm more enthusiastic about the chances of someone I like at the Democratic primary coming to the fore uh, than I am about Bill Weld overturning uh, uh, Trump's reign. Um, but I've been watching them both. Now, where are you at then? I mean, because you are, you are somebody that has... Uh, uh categorize yourself as as a uh, libertarian and certainly a, a a you've made a lot of your uh a content on conservative media outlets are there anybody in this famously kind of progressive tilted democratic field that you're like hmm, i don't know yeah maybe interesting. There's, there's there's a few because I'll, I'll say like I, really the only noun that i tend to slap on myself is i'll own up to being a classical liberal i think that that's a good moniker yeah. for me uh, it, like when we get into the libertarian stuff, I'd say I'm an independent who leans libertarian. And, and the reason I say that is that uh, I, I don't I, I'm not dogmatic about it. It's more of an inclination. It's sort of a starting point um, in that I tend to be very skeptical of um, uh, the the efficacy of regulations. But I'm, I'm not I'm not an anarchist or anything like that. And there's a lot of things that I kind of veer off of pretty quick. And so there are Democrats I like a lot. Uh, oh, and I'll, I'll add to that. I might Justin, I might be the last moderate in the United States. I think there's a good chance that I am the very <laughs> last moderate. Uh, and uh, and as such, as the last moderate yeah. in America, it is a grim future <laughs> to say it. For the, for the few other quiet people, and there are people that I'm sure that listen to your program that are like me. They're like, like you know, everybody's just shouting and they're like, 
I'm a moderate. I'm just going to very quietly drift yeah. to the back of the room. And, uh, yeah, it doesn't look good for us. Uh, but I'll say that as a, as a classical liberal or as a moderate or, or however you want to put that, there are a few people. Um, uh, I like the, the people that I like in the Democratic primary that I would be pleased to see move forward and keep going. I like Tulsi Gabbard. I very much like her foreign okay. policy positions. I think she is unique in that regard in that she is um, actually wanting to disassemble to some extent to pull back the – American industrial military complex and, and Republicans and Democrats both just have their their heads plowed into that trough and there's really no there's really not a substantial policy difference between Republicans and Democrats from term to term in the presidency. Tulsi Gabbard seems to be very different. I like her. Uh, I, I I hope she goes very far in it. Uh, I like Andrew Yang. Yeah. Um, well, I, hold I'll, on. I'll wait a minute. Wait, because because the Yang the Yang thing is a whole other thing. We're we're gonna stop on Tulsi Gabbard real quick. Spoiler alert: yeah. she won't go much farther. But I will <laughs> well, say this. I will say this. Uh, I actually really enjoyed her and uh, Buddha Judge going back and forth on military policy last I think night. They're, they're the only two veterans in there, too, aren't they? Or is uh, anybody else up on stage at, a veteran? No, they're the only two. And also, yeah. it it was kind of refreshing to see people who actually served in wars talking about wars because, you know, we're coming out of a baby boomer generation that largely either, like, were, were heralded for not going to war, but, like, we're now entering a generation of young people that served, and now they have uh, the ability to talk about it on a stage uh, where a lot of people are watching. I, I, I was kind of like shocked that that shocked me. Actually, I was just like, "Oh wow, I didn't, I never thought about that." That we've never had this level of dialogue with people who are actually out there. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Um, I, I saw part of that exchange. I kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm with, I, I enjoyed the steely-eyed skepticism that Tulsi Gabbard had during uh, Buttigieg, uh, during during his response, because there is this kind of, I, re Republicans and Democrats both tend to come up with a lot of reasons to maintain perpetual warfare. Yes. Uh, and and I think Tulsi seems to be aware of that, and and Pete had a very. Uh, you know, a very good. It's you know, it's because of American honor and commitment, and that's why people are coming to America. And I was like, oh, that you could apply that to staying in every country forever. Um, but uh, and I'll, I'll say this in terms of spoilers, Justin. Spoiler yeah. to anybody listening: everyone I like will fail. Uh, <laughs> I, I, as the last moderate that's in America, it. if I endorse you or I just say I like you, you are doomed. You are a good. Like I think like. The second I was like, you know what? I rather like that Hickenlooper. Like before I said Hickenlooper, he dropped out he of the race. He was out. Yeah, uh, he was out. Um, but yeah, I like Tulsi Gabbard. I, I said I like I like Pete Buttigieg as well. Um, one of the one of the I, I, you know having I, I've worked uh, I, while I am not a conservative, I've worked in conservative circles before, yeah. and uh, they tend to portray um, the the Democratic Party. I think is a lot more monolithic and a lot more ideological than it actually is. And one of the, the the kind of the two divisions that I see in the last few years in the Democratic Party, there's on the one hand um, this kind of growing divide between the neoliberals like Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama and the outright anti-market people. Uh, yeah. And uh, while Elizabeth Warren wouldn't say that, she strikes me as very anti-market. Uh, Bernie Sanders is overtly anti-market. So that's an interesting division. Uh, and by the way, I'm on the pro-market side of things. Sure. Um, but then the other thing that I that I find interesting, and this is how I get into the Yang camp and the Buttigieg camp, is that there seems to be a, a kind of split between um, do we want the government to empower individuals or do we want the government to um, create restraints for individuals? Uh, so uh, like like Klobuchar, um, Buttigieg, they, they both want to have like you know some combination of the existing healthcare system or or sorry I, I should say the private private sector but they want to have insurance yeah private private well. health insurance yeah which, which, which right. seems and, to now 
be the red line of where we are in, yeah. in the healthcare debate, which is it's so interesting that we worked. You know, I've been going back and looking at all these old campaigns and it's like you go back and you watch the the Carter the Carter Reagan debate. And right before literally the thing that Carter is talking about right before the famous Reagan. There you go again is a public option for hmm. health care. Right. So this is something that has been a part of Democratic to do list for now 40 years right mm -hmm. uh and now that it seems like it's the moderate thing to do there's an element of front running element of the party that's like nope right yeah. skip right over it you're yeah it's 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 that that i'll say i get so frustrated with healthcare policy discussions anybody that actually can handle a healthcare policy discussion has a tip of the hat from me uh, because it, it is incredibly complex. And like, yes, if, if yeah. like I, I, I'm on team universal healthcare. I want everybody to have healthcare. Um, what we're debating, at least what I'm debating, is the methodology by which we achieve that. Yeah. Um, I would be more in favor of a private market with some sort of social safety net that's government funded in order to to take care of market failure. That so I think that would put me in the public option camp or something like that, uh, making me a moderate Democrat in that regard. And then there's there's a lot of screaming from the other end that's like, uh, oh, you're just a shill for insurance companies. Well, and, and I'm like, no, I. I hate insurance companies, but also I don't want Donald Trump in charge of my health care. I think well, uh, there is there is an interesting part because I can see it from the progressive angle where they're like, well, look, yes, no, we've been trying for 40 years. It never happens. Do you, like how many yeah. times does Lucy need to pull this football out from in front of yeah. us before we realize that this isn't something that's ever going to happen? They're always going to have some reason why it it's not going to be what we need to do now. And that's why we need to set our sights for 50 yards down the field. Could be, could could very well be, um, but to to finish up a thought very quickly. Go ahead. Um, yeah. I, one, one of the other divisions that I've seen in this race is just you know wh whether you want to use the the government to empower individuals or not. Uh, and in that camp, like I I really like Pete Buttigieg and I like Andrew Yang. It seems to me that both of them are are almost more like European social democrats uh, in in the non-regulatory sense. What I mean by that is they're like, hey, we're going to raise taxes and we're going to you know, pass them out as food stamps or vouchers or something to take care of people, UBI, whatever. But, but they're not they're not coming up with these Rube Goldberg type mechanisms. That's the Elizabeth Warren camp. Elizabeth Warren wants to have these massive sprawling government infrastructures to kind of uh, make sure that everybody is acting in sync with the best wishes of their crowd. Uh, and so for that reason, I like Yang a lot. I like Pete Buttigieg. I like Tulsi Gabbard. I like Amy Klobuchar. Uh, I like Michael Bennett. And I think all of them will be flushed out uh, by <laughs> Iowa. I well, think they'll I'll, all be doomed. I think, well, the two that will definitely make it to Iowa are Pete and Yang. Yang has, because uh, so you, you know, I, I'm here for the campaign. Like, I, right. I'm here you, for- You love tactics and you like you love the art of I politics. love the art of the you campaign. The craft. So it's like, in my mind, nobody has run a better campaign than Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang's campaign from like somebody that was a nobody- to like literally there was a point this year where both you and I had more <laughs> public recognition than Andrew right. Yang did. Yeah. And now he is a, a real player. You I mean he, there was a half hour last night where everybody had to seriously discuss UBI. Like they had to say, yeah. all right, UBI for or against. And if you're against, which they all were, cause nobody else is talking about it. Why is your program better? And it was good for him because nobody else's plan is is in opposition to his. They're just kind of picking things off the heap that they're like, oh, no, well, a federal jobs guarantee would be better. Why? Well, because that was the other thing that I was saying. So that's what I'm just going to say now. Not because it matches up well against that. Yeah, I know. I, I love I, I really like that Andrew Young is gamed the system. Like, he has. He, he, 
because that, that's how he how he initially got into the, the the debates was he 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 actually read the fine print on the the rules of the Democratic Party and I, I don't remember the exact thing but it was well, basically like if you get a thousand people or ten thousand people that donate at least a dollar and he's like great that's what we're going to focus on uh, like he he strikes me he's the guy that actually reads the whole iTunes agreement yes. before clicking yes and, yes and then figures out a way to to best it. And so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm thrilled that he's come as far. He's, he's going to he's doing a lot to get UBI out out in the debate. And uh, uh, I hope he does pretty well. I, and I think P Pete Buttigieg, I think you're right. I think he'll go through Iowa. He might this might be the only time ever that a mayor from I don't remember where in South, Indiana. I mean, Andrew, just understand that the first mainstream gay candidate for president is Pete Buddha judge, a man with butt in his last name from South yeah. Bend, Indiana. Like yep. this is a, a 12th dimension boy named Sue level, right. uh, uh, you know, toughening that this guy has to have. Uh, uh, it is it is almost like you would if you were to write it in a story, you would be accused of being homophobic. Right. It would be, be, you'd be, yeah, you'd be camping homophobic. Although one of the things I really enjoy about Buttigieg is that doesn't appear to be the the really the the candidate's uh, profile in, no. in terms of what, what like whenever I watch him, like he um uh he he you know he's kind of the middle American Democrat family guy veteran. Which yeah, is the way I, to way to get Middle America, and I think it, I think all the people that were in in the middle of the United States, and I'm 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 from this part of the country. There were a ton of people in America in the the 2000s that that uh, would would go, they'd watch Modern Family, and then they they'd like talk to me and go, I was watching Modern Family, and there's a gay couple, and they are just like a regular couple, and I'm like, <laughs> right, they're exactly the same as you. They just have sometimes better shoes, but otherwise, they're basically exactly they're they're talking about school districts and property taxes just like you. And I feel like Pete Buttigieg is very much that. Yes, Pete Buttigieg is the like can talk to veterans from from Kansas and Nebraska, and they're like, all right, okay, I follow along on this. And I'll say this is the only time ever where the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, could actually run against the president because our existing president is a game show host. Yes. In any other time, this would not work. But for some, like this time around, he could actually do it. Nobody could play the experience card. It's funny. I was actually, and earlier in this podcast, I do a whole thing about the 2008 primary. Uh, and I was like, you know, going back and doing research and just looking at how Barack Obama was written about in 2008 of like, well, you know, like it was thought of as just him dipping a toe into the water because this is obviously not Barack Obama's time because yeah. the idea of a senator stepping up, a senator stepping up to junior uh, senator to def defeat Hillary Clinton. Yeah. Yeah. Or, uh, uh, you know, somebody or, uh, you know, somebody else and it wound up being John McCain for president was just like, well, a, a bridge too far. You're not in D.C. for long enough. And now, man, that has in in a short few years just totally gone out the window where and, and I don't know if it's a bad thing. I don't know if it's a bad thing that we've opened up the the window to more people than just governors from populous states and really old senators. <laughs> but we're certainly testing the boundaries. Well, you, you know, my theory, Justin, is that we are living in a sitcom and oh, okay. all of the available evidence points to me being correct in that regard. I, I, <laughs> I am hoping that I get a uh, a Nobel Prize this year, which, if I'm right, can entirely happen because that would make an interesting episode of the sitcom. And uh, uh, and if that's the case, I think Marianne Robinson will win if we are living in a sitcom. Uh, well, I mean, uh, she would have to change her no, name. Sorry. Williamson. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah, because the psychic versus the game show host would definitely be like a really good that would prove we're in a comedy. And not on a drama, and uh, and and yeah, and so that yeah, we we could we could see all sorts of interesting combinations. All right, the one other reason I wanted to bring you on 
because you are, uh, in my mind, one of the funniest people in in politics, writing about and talking about politics. Uh, there are some of these candidates that have their own names for their fans, or the fans give themselves names. And, you know, you have the Yang Gang. I don't know if, if Bernie Bros is uh, uh, something that is, is accepted by folks who are into Bernie, but it is a nomenclature. I've always been fascinated by this, but some candidates, even the ones that get the nomination, like Hillary didn't have a name for her fans, so I named them the Hill Dogs. Like, nice. like, was that I, you? Because I think I've heard that before. Well, yeah, no, I, that, that was always the thing that I like to call them, at least. I don't nice. know if I made it up. But there, I, I need other names. I need, uh, you know, I, I've, I've, I've kind of stuck with Biden heads because okay. uh, I feel like-, like bobblehead. Yeah. A bobblehead, deadhead, deadhead seems like the kind of like super fan that a Biden would would have maybe like maybe a few more gray hairs than they used to, but they still mm -hmm. like to rock and roll with these moderate policies. Yep. Uh, oh, maybe they'd be more like I don't know what are the Eagles fans named? I feel like maybe that would be more uh. the Biden crowd. Anyway, I, I'm I'm digressing. I need nicknames for these fan bases. I, I've come up with several and they're all terrible. Let's no, go. I love them. But I'll so and they're, they're terrible too because they like they like I'm looking at the ones I came up with with Buttigieg who again I I rather like yeah um the two I came up with are pedos or booty calls <laughs> I mean, all and right. neither of those we are, gotta like, move you know right I... by we're speeding right by both of those <laughs> yeah I just like again I'm not even trying to demonize his people I, I know I, I rather yeah. like the guy but it's the only thing I could come up with. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. What, what about like what? What about because because they call him Mayor Pete, and for some reason Mayor, people yeah. pronounce it with him M A R E, like a like a female horse mayor. Um, so maybe <laughs> like horse horse uh, pony boys. No the pony boys. Uh, Stay see, gold. The Stay you gold. See what I'm doing here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that wouldn't work. Uh, Steet. No. Uh, okay. I feel like any horse thing I use. This is well. Tough. Of course. Number one, you and the horse. The the horse yeah. universe of, of Andrew Heaton, <laughs> the expanded horse universe, is something that people yep. need to go ahead and check out. Uh, ah, man. Yeah. I I feel like. Is there anything with May? Uh, uh. Oh, gee, I was gonna say Mother May. Mayorals. Yep. Um. May days? No. The, the that, May no. days? Well, I guess that that leads him more into a into a collectivist sense, right? If it's May yeah. Day. Uh, yeah, I don't. I, I'm all of these. So I'll, I'll. Yeah. I do. You want? Do you want to go down the list? Let's, or do you want to focus on them one by one until we come up with a good I, one? I, are any? Uh, did, did you have any that you had that you had scribbled down, or or we can just well, go I've down got the several, list? Several, but just none of them are good. No, I want to hear the bad ones. Go. Okay. So Kamala Harris. Yes. Harris Tweeds. The Harris Tweeds. Yeah, and then people can start wearing tweed if they like her. <laughs> I have to say, Andrew, I don't know if I really even get this reference. I, Harris tweed. You never heard of Harris tweeds? They're they're a famous brand of tweed from the Isle of Harris in Scotland. And, and if you were if we were in Scotland, everybody would pick up on that. Well, I'll uh, tell you, I'm getting. That, I'm getting. That's why this is such a good campaign <laughs> campaign slogan of making it all tweed that people are like, wait a minute, is she like the Scottish black? Lady, what? So, but I, I couldn't think of anything else because, like, like uh, Harris. That's the only thing I can. No, think of you want to know what? I'm all in on this now. Now I'm just perusing <laughs> various Harris tweeds. I feel like I'm gonna because I I live in her hometown of Oakland, so I'm just gonna uh -huh. start wearing tweed jackets, and maybe people are like, "Oh, what's up with the tweed jacket?" And I'm like, "Oh, you're not down with Kamala? Come yeah. on, for the people." Yeah, 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 yeah. I like that. Okay, so that could be a thing. That's a Harris we, 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 tweeds. We'll... I'm in on Harris tweeds. Harris tweeds. Okay. Um, all right. Again, this is all shooting from the hip. We're, I don't think these are yeah. very good at all. Okay, a Andrew Yang. 
like the only two things I can think of are either some derivative of his name or something involving UBI. Okay. So like Ubi's, but that doesn't sound very good. The other one I came up with is Ying Yangs, and that sounds terrible. That sounds kind of <laughs> racist, calling them Ying Yangs. Or, or well, I mean, he could like be the, he could be know. like the Ying Yang Twins, of course, the famous Atlanta booty music uh, uh, duo. Oh yeah, them. Yeah, you remember? Oh, you don't know you know the the Whisper song? No. Oh, whisper? I'm gonna send it to you. Oh, you're gonna yeah the uh uh, uh wait you see they, they whisper throughout the entire song. Uh, hold on, didn't 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 Yang like he's done a pretty good social media game, hasn't he? Of like, yes. he he he's been famous for the whole like my you know my father grew up in a in a hut with no floors and and I guess Taiwan, China or Taiwan, Taiwan. I can't yeah. remember which yeah. one, uh, which one specifically. But he had that, and then he's had a few social media things where uh, he's called people out on stuff. So I wonder if there's like a hashtag that could be appropriated for him. I mean, you know, no matter what, I kind of feel like we're going to be on the wrong side if because uh, they've already named themselves the Yang Gang. Like, uh, it's oh, going to be okay. hard. Yeah, it's going to be hard to to uh, to to overtake the Yang Gang. Uh, Yeah, yeah you're right. Yeah, because Yang Cadre, that doesn't sound as <laughs> no, cool. No, no. Yeah, the Yang Triad. Well, again, Jesus, man. Uh, uh, we are, although, we're... although, you know what that gets me to? OK, so with Elizabeth Warren, yes. the only thing I could come up with was something involving rabbits. Because, you know, because rabbits live in Warrens, like in Watership Down, right? <laughs> so I was coming up with, like, Libby bunnies or, or Liz bunnies or something like, no, damn it. Okay, that also sounds bad. Yeah. Right, but here, here's what I'm thinking, though. Warren Commission. Yeah. The Warren Commission. Yes, the Warren Commission. All right, I'm in on, all right, I'm in on Harris Tweed, and I'm in on Warren Commission. These are going into daily use here on the PX3 nice. program. Excellent. Uh, oh man, I'm thrilled. I'm really thrilled. I, I'm actually I'm happy with the Warren Commission. I feel That's like I feel like we should almost unless is there anything else there that that you feel you feel good about because we can punch out on Warren Commission because that one's nope. that one's strong. I, I, yeah, I'm gonna drop the mic on that one. All right. Well, then uh, the the only uh, thing that we have left to say is that if you will be at Politicon, then congratulations, you are that much closer to sharing a drink with Andrew Heaton and myself. Not only are we going to be there, but we're having a happening. I don't exactly. It it will be a happening that is at it's, least. It's going to be like an archon in StarCraft where we just merge into a glorious, funny political entity. Exactly. Uh, so, yeah, we will we will station uh, into one big station like in Bill and Ted's uh, Bogus Journey on October 26th. And that is at Politicon in Nashville, Tennessee. We are not part of official programming. Uh, we are just going to be at least a meetup and maybe even possibly friends, even some kind of live PX3 political orphanage crossover mm -hmm. if we can secure the right venue. But the, here's what you need to know. It'll be around seven o'clock on October 26th. Uh, that is the Saturday of Politicon in Nashville, Tennessee, downtown around the convention center as close as we can get. But follow uh, myself at Justin R. Young if you want all the details and uh, we will make sure that we get them to you. I'm excited to meet oh, everybody. I'm stoked. Just I am so stoked to hang out with you in Nashville. We're going to have a blast. Oh, it's going to be awesome. And maybe some of the Warren Commission and the Harris Tweeds can show up and we can we can bridge yeah. the divide between the two of them. Yeah, yeah, we'll get like a dance off or something. <laughs> all right, uh, Andrew, again, the Political Orphanage is your podcast, but you got mm -hmm. uh, a, a newsletter and some other stuff, right? I got a newsletter. I'm on Twitter. Yeah, I, I'd say uh, check out the Political Orphanage. If, if you found me charming and insightful, 
You can get this in even more distillate form if you go to the political orphanage. Uh, tends to be for uh, it, well, it, it's actually explicitly designed for people that uh, are turned off by partisan rancor, but like substance and humor. Uh, so you'll get a kick out of that. And yeah, good, come check me out there. All right. Thank you very much, man. Thank you. Politics. And that is a wrap for us today. Thank you to everybody who supports us at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. I specifically want to talk to my $10 tier right now. Thank you, D-Laser, Andy, Paul, Mike, and Brad. You guys are the backbone of this program. If you would like to reach out to me, you can do so at TheYoungAmerican at gmail.com. Our music has been provided by Valesco and Drop Killers and... You can, uh, of course, follow me everywhere. Justin R. Young. Join our Discord, bit.ly slash jury discord. That is J-U-R-Y-D-I-S-C-O-R-D. Until the next time that we speak, friends, a reminder that politics has three names. And some shows talk about politics. Others, well, they talk about politics. And I heard the one the other day, man, they were talking about politics, but this is the only one that talks about yes. Oh, Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>